Good morning. Was that uh, anticlimactic? It's good to be back again. Uh, as I said, my name is Michael Burns. But a disturbingly high number of people this week have come up to me and go, you're the guy that wore the bright green suit, right? <laughs> Not sure that's how I ideally want to be remembered, but amen, at least you remembered. And that's the point. It, it is really good to be back here again. I hope you all aren't getting sick of me just yet. But I'm, I'm uh, grateful to be with you. You've been in the Sermon on the Mount for a while this year, and we're continuing that, and we've finally arrived at chapter 6. Now, if you remember, um, and I'm going to ask us to pull up the, the first slide here. If you don't, it's, it's fine. I'm not going to test you on this. Uh, today I'm going to talk about hunger and thirst, but the, the next slide I want to show, I showed this last time, and there's this chiasm, this pattern. I'm not going to repeat that for you if you don't remember that. I'm not going to bore you with all that, but simply to point out that the, the passages that we'll look at for the next three weeks have a connection to the beatitude, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and that, that connects with Matthew 6, verses 1 through 18, where Jesus starts to lay out what it looks like to be a, a people who look the same on the inside and the outside. A, a private victory before public victory. And that's kind of the theme for the next three weeks. Let's jump right in and read this passage. And it says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In Jesus' time, it was common to sort of, I don't want to say reduce, but symbolically talk about one's faith with the three tenets of giving to those in need, prayer, and fasting. And so Jesus addresses those three aspects of spiritual life. And it's interesting what he gets into here because it's really, we're going to kind of misunderstand, I think, what he's saying if we don't understand that he's really talking here about what drives or motivates what we do, okay? And that's a, that's a big key is how we are motivated. In fact, I want to talk about motivation for just a minute. If we could advance here, let's talk about our appetite. And we'll go one more slide here. And we're going to talk about motivation or conviction. What, what motivates us? Now, I did bring something today. You know I did. Now, this is a swimsuit. I hope you can see the neon palm trees and all that. 
I just decided to bring this up today. Um, Jeff Hickman asked if he could wear this. He really wanted to model it. He said, you know, last week I wore the, the robe and I really liked that. Can I please wear the swimsuit? And I said, Jeff, uh, I don't know that people want to see that every week. <clears throat> That's not true. But, you know, summer's coming up. And one of the things that you hear this time of year is you got to get ready for that beach body, right? Got to get your summer body in shape. Some of us are like, yes, I'm down with that. Some of you are like, I gave up that dream years ago. But you get motivated to what? Get back in the gym, work out. Maybe it's not the beach body. Maybe it's the New Year's resolution. Anybody who goes to the gym regularly knows the January bump. And then February, it goes back to normal. But see, we get motivated by things like this, but that's short term. It doesn't last. Because you know how I know? Because next year, everybody's talking about getting their beach body back again. The same thing, if it worked, you would have it and it, there wouldn't be this billion dollar industry. And so that, that seems to fall short a little bit. And that matters when it comes to our behavior because then we're presented with choices like this Reese's peanut butter triple X giant bar. <laughs> This is a thousand calories and a hundred grams of sugar or an orange. That's a cutie, right? Somebody's going to tell me that's technically not an orange. I know. You don't have to email me on it. The short-term motivation will help you maybe make the better choice for a while. But before long, this starts to look really good. And the desire to do this fades and you suddenly find yourself with four of these wrappers laying around. That would be a day. Now, if you're wise, you try to find some longer-term motivation. Like, you know what? I want to live longer. That's my conviction. I want to live longer. And that's good. But if it's all just off in the distant future, that will fade over time, too. Maybe it'll last for a year or two, and then you're like, you know, I can't live forever. Or if I go, I want to go with a smile on my face. <laughs> What's really needed to change our behavior permanently is to have a long-term conviction with a present motivation. Does that make sense? Um, this got melted in my car. Does anybody want this though? Here you go. There you go. 
I could tell Chase wanted that. Okay, so let's talk about this for a minute. Let's go forward here. With motivation, you have behavior and choices that are rooted in external goals. It's something outside of me that motivates me towards behavior right now. And it's short term. Conviction, on the other hand, it's, it's usually rooted long term. It's internalized. It's something that's future and it's out there. But again, there's a weakness to both of these in and of themselves. Motivation fades. Conviction we start to lose sight of after a while. What is needed, if we can move forward here, um, is convictions that are, well, let me say this, let me hit this slide. Convictions that are rooted solely in the future, like I said, can easily fade from view. Now let me take that to a spiritual sense. If, our, if what drives our behavior, our conviction, is solely that I want to get to heaven one day, that might hold out for some of us, but for some of us, that starts to grow dim after a while. When faced in the immediate moment with decisions of who I'm going to be, we sometimes that gets murky, right? Or if our immediate motivation is, well, I want to, you know, kind of, raise up and be a leader and look good and impress those around me, which we can do in a spiritual sense. That's why Jesus is bringing these things up. That motivation won't hold. What we need, next slide, the strongest convictions are those rooted in the future, but that also take shape a present reality, reality a motivating conviction. I want to live longer, but I want to be able to enjoy my grandchildren or my children, right? I want to live longer and have more time with my spouse, but I also want them to think I still got it. Or we'll talk about the, the spiritual version of this in a minute. But it's this motivating conviction. It's rooted in something that's not going to change. That's what immutable means. It won't, it won't change. It's solid, but it also has an anchor right now that makes my choices matter. Does that make sense? Next one. And I just kind of put this up here as a, as a summary so you can see. With motivation, you've got external. It drives behavior in the short term, but it's subject to the conditions around me, and it, it can change. It's mutable. Conviction is internal. It's future-based. The immediate conditions are irrelevant, but we can start to drift, and that can become mutable. But a motivating conviction is eternal, it's future-based with present manifestation. It becomes immune to the conditions. You can put the choices in front of me. I'm not going to choose the Reese bar because I've already set my conviction. I, I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to weigh it out. This is just who I am now. That's when we have a motivating conviction. Are you with me so far? All right, next one. Now, in the, the three sections we're going to look at in Matthew 6, we'll see a pattern. 
Today we're going to look at the first one, and then the next two weeks, the next two, but you'll see the same pattern. Jesus will say, he'll make an observation, he'll say, don't do this, and then he'll talk about the improper motivation or goal, the counterfeit reward that we receive, and the thing that we should do, and then he'll talk about the motivating conviction. Does that make sense? So, don't do this, don't eat the Reese bar, because it'll taste really good in a minute, but what's that, what's that old saying, moment on the lips? <laughs> Lifetime on the hips, there you go, okay. Next one. By the way, just to be clear, that's just an illustration. I am in no way saying that eating candy is like sinful or anything like that. Um, okay, wow, the spacing on this went wonky, but that's okay. So in Matthew 6, verses 1 through 4, the observation is when you give to those in need. Notice it's not if, but when. This is, now another important element, let me back up and say this. It's really important to keep in mind to understand what Jesus is doing is that in the Sermon on the Mount, he is, he is forming God's collective agent, his people. He's saying this is what God's people will look like. We are so hyper-individualized in our culture that we tend to read the Bible like individuals and think everything is about us and we form ourselves as individuals. That's not what Jesus is doing here, although yes, there's an important individuality to us coming to faith and all of that, but what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is saying this is what a Christ-shaped people will look like, okay? And that's really important to understand. There is no way to be the just, righteous manifestation agent of God, the people of new creation, by yourself. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at. That's exactly the problem with motivation. Because when you give, don't announce it. Because what's the improper motivation? to be seen by others. Now remember I said this has a connection to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus' point here is, what's your appetite trained for? What motivates you? What drives you? Is it righteousness, which is God's future age, the just righteousness where we all live equally and we don't have the sin and inequity and all these things I talked about last time, the steps and the tears and the hierarchies, but we are an even equal people. All people. But what happens is our motivation can easily slip into individual self-focus. Well, I want to be thought of well. I want to be used. I want to get ahead. I want others to think highly of me. I want people to notice if they don't, if they don't know I did it. And we get everything from announcing it to the ever popular humble brag <laughs> where you, you know, don't brag but you do. That's, see on social media, you see that all over the place. 
But so our appetite, Jesus says, your appetite becomes individualized. It becomes, I want to be seen. Think of how often Jesus was trying to direct people away from that and towards this collective view of how, how we are motivated and what we're striving for. He wants our motivation to be God's future together as a people. When that is our conviction that we will be in God's presence with his people as a people living a just righteous existence, we then start to work now to realize that, to show people what it looks like. If that's all I hunger for, I'm going to start creating it now with all of you. And if that's my motivation to be a people in God's presence, then the whole idea of me getting ahead and being praised and lauded and all of that loses its motivation. I have no appetite for that because that's not my conviction. But if my motivation is just that long-term, I want to get to heaven then I want to make sure I'm successful. I want to, I need that reinforcement that I'm doing good. I need you to praise me. Does that make sense? And so often, Matthew 23, when Jesus was uh, directly addressing the Pharisees, what did he tell them? He said, you guys do all the individual religious things. You tithe on your mint and dill and cumin. This is verse 23. But he said, you neglect the weightier matters like justice and mercy and being a faithful people. See how he's directing them away from the individual I made it. I'm a successfully religious person to a community that is something. The rich young man came to Jesus. I kept this law and this law and I've kept all the commandments and I'm doing it. Give me my praise, right? Give me the pat on the back and tell me I'm heading in the right direction. And Jesus says, that's, that's good, but you lack one thing. Take everything you have and give it to the poor. It's that community mindset. This is your motivation, not to be a successful religious person, to be part of God's people. The good Samaritan, or the helping Samaritan. Bunch of people walked by, religious folks. Why? The implication is pretty clear. They wanted to remain clean. They wanted to keep their personal religious piety. Who was the neighbor? The one who got his hands dirty and helped someone else, who acted like a neighbor and community. Do you see how many stories of Jesus are directing us away from this individual internal motivation to a different kind of appetite. When our appetite is self-fulfillment and individual, it eats away at community. And eventually, it gets old. It gets burdensome. It becomes difficult. But if we have a conviction of becoming God's people together, that leads us to be motivated by the audience of the king to just hear, I just want to hear, well, well done, good and faithful servants. That's what we're aiming for. We're working together to create a new reality. And it leads to a consistency of what we're building. Next slide, please. 
Motivation in this case, Jesus says, is honor. I want to be lifted up. I want to be noticed. I want to know that I'm a good Christian. Instead of, I am part of a godly people that's creating something. See how the emphasis gets off of me? I'm, I no longer have that hunger because it's the, the individual concept feeds into that. I'm not saying it always ends in that, but it's very prone to that. And Jesus is trying to retrain here. Instead, the motivating conviction is the Father's just righteousness. But that's not just a future hope. It's something we're building now. This beautiful community. Next one. In Romans 8, Paul says... If your mind is set on the flesh, and for Paul when he talks about flesh, it's kind of a symbolic word for the present age, the age to come, the self-driven, self-fulfillment mentality. And he says if your mind is, is, if your appetite is honed to that, no matter how much you try to please God, you never will because you have the wrong appetite. You're motivated by the wrong thing. No matter how much you want to be healthy, you will rip open that Reese's bar like a jackal gremlin every time. Why? I didn't want to do that. Why do I keep blowing it? Because your appetite is trained in the wrong direction. And you don't even know it. But he says, but the mind trained and honed by the spirit and the spirit's future. This is what he's talking about here. Becoming in Romans 8, becoming God's people. He says, if that's what we're going for in in this spirit-filled future age, then you, you just will naturally start to hunger and thirst for the right things here and now. It won't be such an effort. Does that make sense? Next one. So if we have our appetite is set right, then our audience will be set right. Instead of becoming self, it will become what God wants. Instead of being built up for me, it will be to add to God's people. When appetite is right, the private motivation tends towards the consistency of what we're building. Now, one more here. Let's, let's go ahead here. Let's talk about this. Because there's a little bit of confusion. In Matthew 6, Jesus seems to be saying, don't do things to be seen. But in the last chapter, he said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Make up your mind, Jesus. <laughs> Again, though, He's talking about what drives us. So in Matthew 6, he's not literally saying, if somebody finds out what you're doing, you lose your blessing. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about motivation. Don't do it to be praised. Don't do it to be seen. When you're building a community and you're all together and you're just trying to create this just, righteous people where we're all in it together and we're serving one another and we're building up and it's not about me anymore and that's not my appetite, then who cares who gets praised? That's not what we're aiming for. 
And yes, people will see it, but our goal will be that they'll go, that's what God's future looks like. Not, oh, this brother, this sister is such an amazing person. We'll be aiming at the right audience. Next slide, please. A new creation. If the new creation is our appetite and we've been honed and the audience is the king and we've been honed into that and being in his presence, then the, the goal becomes the new creation now. That's what we're working for now. If that's our conviction in the future, like this is where it's headed. This age of, what does Revelation say? When the new Jerusalem comes, there'll be no tears. Spell that word for me. I think you got it. T-E-A-R-S. So if that's our conviction, if that's where it's headed, if, if there's, it's a future of God being in our presence and him gathering all the people together and, and his people, you know, living in his presence and carrying on in the just righteous reality that he has created and longed for and wants us to enjoy, if no tears is our future, then our present is driven by no tears T-I-E-R-S. Right? That's what the rich young man couldn't grasp. When he said, I've been doing all these religious things, and Jesus is like, okay, you're stuck in the present age. But there's this future reality that's breaking in now. The new creation, the new creation people's here, it's forming in me. And I'm gonna hone your appetite in the right way, give up everything you have. He's trying to move him into the future age. But he's stuck. Because his appetite is, I gotta have this to take care of myself. I gotta be safe, I gotta be comfortable. And he couldn't accept the new creation. His training had deformed him. See, we get trained every day. Is our training transforming us or deforming us according to being God's future people? And if I've gotta, this is not to make you feel guilty, but if we're sitting there constantly going, oh, I've always got to deal with anger because I didn't get noticed or I didn't get used or I didn't get lauded the way I should, that's a warning light that your appetite has been deformed and it's in the wrong direction. Right? And it's about whether we're doing something religious or becoming God's people. Doing needs praise and reinforcement. Becoming seeks to bring glory to God. Okay. 
Do we, do we have one more slide or is that my last slide? Okay, stay right there, that's perfect. But here's, here's one last thing. It demands focus on who Jesus is and what his kingdom is. And I think sometimes we forget to celebrate that. We forget to think about Jesus and, and why we do this and being in Christ. Paul starts out his great letter to Ephesians on unity. And he, he, he focuses it in, it in on us being in Christ. And sometimes it's good to get cerebral and break things down, but sometimes we do that a little too much and we forget. And I, I turn on the TV and I see people screaming at games and standing to their feet and cheering on teams and forgetting who is the king of kings, forgetting who is the author of the alphabet and the Lord of all life that conquers kingdoms in Matthew from genealogy to ascension. He is bolder than any brave, higher than any hawk, and more faithful than any falcon. <laughs> Throughout Matthew's gospel, he is the performance of prophecy, giving us God's gateway to the God with us. Have you thought about that lately? From beginning to end, in chapter 1 of Matthew, he is the much-anticipated Messiah who mediates the Mosaic ministry into the milieu of Messianic ministry simultaneously, a mighty man and the moppet of malign maidens with a moniker, Emmanuel. In chapter 2, he is the secret savior, signified by the star and sought by the sages, sent by the spirit to the sand, satisfying all seers had said. In chapter 3, he is the anointed son, acknowledged by his antecedent and proved by the almighty ancient one. In chapter 4, he is the totality of would-be temptation. He is the already bred temple and king. He is the proclaimer and preacher, king and kingdom, heaven in the flesh, the desire of discipleship and the goal of good news. I wondered if you were still there. In chapter 5, he is the mightier Moses, making his manifesto for the lowly to unleash a light to the lost and revolutionize the world by lavishing love on the least likely. In chapter 6, he is the humble heir of the hallowed one, habilitating us to inhabit earth as though we were in heaven. In chapter 7, he is the negator of the narcissistic, the narrow road, and the rock which requires our radical resolution to his regency. Can I get a witness? In chapter 8, he is the awesome author of authority who delivers directions to disease and demons, demands dedicated discipleship, and seduces the stormy squalls. In chapter 9, he is the great physician, preserving the paralyzed, puzzling the Pharisees, and serving samples of the celestial city to those who can't see. In chapter 10, he is the sender of shepherds to seek his scattered sheep, summoning his students to be servants supported by the Spirit. In chapter 11... He is the judge and jury of both the meek and the mighty, whose humble heart heals the disheartened, yet justifies his jurisprudence and judgment to those who justify their own rejection. 
In chapter 12, he is the Father's fundamental and faithful fulfillment of the Sabbath, the Son of David, who suppresses and scatters the Satanic by the Spirit, and the Son of Solomon surpassing his scepter with the sign of Jonah. Y'all don't hear me. In chapter 13, he is messenger and message, treasure and teacher, Isaiah's prophesied, prognosticating preacher without proper prestige among his people. In chapter 14, he is the feeder of the forlorn 5,000, the wonder worker and the wave walker who whips the wind and welcomes the worship of those who are left with no wonder. In chapter 15, he is the Lord over the law who lauds loyalty and loves the unlovable. In chapter 16, he is the pattern for Peter, the predictor of pain and the presenter of God's plan to glorify, bring good and gain to the world through the inglorious. I don't know if y'all are ready for this. In chapter 17, He is the illuminated, inevitable, immutable, irrepressible, immovable, irresistible, inescapable, indefatigable, indescribable, innovator of the immediate, an introduction of the immortal, imagining the immense God to the inhumane. In chapter 18, he is father to the fatherless, the shepherd of shepherds, the Lord of lords, the servant of servants, the judge of judges, and the caretaker of the church. And yet y'all still just sit there. In chapter 19, he is the friend of the forgotten who accepts the unacceptable. He requires the rich to recognize his reign and royal authority to request that they resign their advantage before they can receive reconciliation. In chapter 20, he sacrifices for all while others scrape for scraps. He gives up his own glory while others grasp to gain their own glorification. He gives sight to the blind while others that can see remain unseeing. In chapter 21, he is the zenith of Zechariah's zeal. Riding into Zion, the humble king of the highest heaven. Hosanna! He turns tables in the temple in the temple and sifts souls. He is the capstone, the keystone, the touchstone, the lodestone, the whetstone, the cornerstone, and the solid rock on which we stand. He is the bridegroom of the banquet, the image, the image bearer, and the image maker, David's Lord with the world as his footstool. In chapter 23, he is worthy of being the most honored, but hails as the most humble. He sits in authority over Sadducee and sinner, saint and scribe, snake and sage, longing to serve and save those who will surrender. In chapter 24, he is the truth teller, the great prognosticator, the prophecy fulfiller, the lesson giver, the secret revealer, the cloud rider, the unexpected arriver, and the master of all masters. In chapter 25, he is the thirsty king, the hungry king, the homeless king, the naked king, the imprisoned king who remains readiness and reserves rewards for the righteous and the ready. In chapter 26, 
He is anointed and adored as his appointed time arrives. But he is also abandoned and unacknowledged by those that should assist him and arrested by those that are unaware that he is the name above all names. And although he is able to abolish it all, he abstains and absorbs the worst the world can reckon. In chapter 27, he is betrayed and bartered for Barabbas, who serves as a surrogate and substitute for us all. He is the Passover lamb, betrayed, bruised, beaten, broken, butchered, and buried. But in chapter 28, there's one more. Y'all better stand up. He is the glory of God, the defeater of death. The grave has no hold on him as he holds the keys of the kingdom in his hand. He is the author of all authority, the uniter of the nations, the destination of discipleship, the Emmanuel to the end of the age, and forever the King of Kings. Give him glory. thank you for who you are. We thank you for your death for us to make us a people. Help us remain focused on you. Keep our eyes on Jesus as we take the Lord's Supper right now. Let it be a celebration of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.